0: Imagine being told your entire life that you're separate but equal that you're entitled to the same rights as everyone else, but that you must be separated from them. This was the case for African Americans living in the Southern states for nearly a century between the end of the American Civil War and the 1950s. This law, first proposed by Southern Democrats in the 1870s, it was anything but equal for its target population. From the inception, blacks were given segregated facilities that were nowhere near as clean and kept up as those of their white counterparts. Though there were a handful of instances of contestation against these discriminatory practices in the near 100 period that they were in place, it wasn't until a December day in 1955 that a single act of civil disobedience set the civil rights movement in motion. Just who was Rosa Parks? What is the history surrounding the separate but equal law? And how did Parks' bravery and defiance ignite the fight for total equality for African Americans? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the final Black History Month installment of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. December 1st, 1955 was a day like any other in Montgomery, Alabama. 42-year-old Rosa Parks boarded the bus that morning, as she always did, to go to the department store where she worked as a seamstress. As she was a black woman, she was forced to sit in the back of the vehicle, which was reserved for coloreds. Instinctively, she made for the rear of the bus and proceeded to her job, which went about as usual. But then, after her shift, she caught the bus home. It was packed, and while she was seated in the front row of the colored section, she was asked to move to accommodate a white writer. When commanded to relinquish her seat, she refused and was arrested and fined as a result. For the authorities at the City of Montgomery Police Department, Parks was simply a case of a defiant black woman who chose to disobey the rules. But little did they or she know at the time that her courage would prove to be the catalyst that would kick off the entire civil rights movement. The law that Parkes so bravely resisted was by no means new or foreign to African Americans, namely those who lived in the South. In fact, it had its origins in the years following the Civil War. In the period known as Reconstruction, federal troops occupied the former Confederate states in an attempt to not only help them rebuild, but to see to it that the newly emancipated slaves were being treated fairly and equally under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. Adopted on July 9, 1868, this amendment states that, quote, All persons born and naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws, With the ratification of this amendment, African Americans were deemed U.S. citizens at last and were finally free to hold office, own land, and vote, though the right of suffrage was only granted to men. Black women would be allowed to vote in part in 1920, and fully with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Though in theory it proved to be a major step forward, in practice, particularly in the southern states, few changes were made, if any at all. Finding loopholes in the new system, Southern Democrats were instrumental in keeping African Americans subjugated under discriminatory laws. Dubbed Jim Crow laws, after a popular minstrelsy song, Jump Jim Crow, by T.D. Rice, they deemed that black citizens were separate but equal, meaning that they were to be segregated from their white counterparts, but supposedly still entitled to the aforementioned equal protection of the 14th Amendment. As to be expected, they were indeed separated, but not equal. For starters, the facilities that were granted to blacks were notoriously unkempt and of lower quality than those of whites. With the birth and rise of the Ku Klux Klan during this time, any and all opposition from blacks was silenced with threats, intimidation, and worst of all, lynchings, in which the hapless victims were murdered and hanged from trees. But not everyone was afraid to speak out against this ordinance. In 1892, a mixed-race man from New Orleans named Homer A. Plessy, who famously proclaimed himself an octo-roon, rune is, a person with seven-eighths white blood and one-eighths black, attempted to purchase a ticket for a seat in a whites-only car on a train bound for Covington, Louisiana. In doing so, he was arrested and charged for violating the separate-but-equal law. Four years later, in a landmark case dubbed Plessy v. Ferguson, the Supreme Court upheld the ordinance, stating that such segregation was, in fact, constitutional. So it was that the practice was kept in place in the southern states for nearly a century. Fast forward to 1955. Though Rosa Parks became a household name in America following her act of defiance and arrest, it was not her first offense. Twelve years earlier, in 1943, she had attempted to board a crowded Montgomery City bus on a cold winter's day. She paid her fare at the front, but resisted the rule that called for black riders to disembark and re-enter through the rear. Standing her ground, the driver became agitated and pulled her aside by her coat sleeve. Despite this, she left, but, as we know, it wouldn't be the last example of civil disobedience on her behalf. Rosa Parks's roots in activism ran deep. Born Rosa Louise McCauley in Tuskegee, Alabama, on February 4, 1913, to Leona and James McCauley, her teacher mother instilled in her at a young age a love and value for education. At just two years old, her parents separated, and the family eventually relocated to Montgomery, where she attended high school at the Alabama State Teachers College for Negroes. When she was 16, however, she left in order to take care of her dying grandmother, and later on, her mother, who suffered from a series of chronic ailments. Though her career as a student was cut short, she would go on to obtain her high school diploma in 19- 1933 at the age of 20, but not before she married Raymond Parks, a Montgomery-based barber and longtime member of the city's chapter of the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It was through this union that she became an active participant in the fight for African-American equality. The couple became respected and beloved members of Montgomery's black community and were active in many of its social circles. Though her husband initially discouraged her from joining the local chapter of the NAACP out of concern for her safety, she nevertheless did in December of 1943. She served as chapter secretary and even as an investigator. In fact, Parks gained considerable renown for her work in investigating a notorious gang rape case the following year, in which one Ressie Taylor was brutally attacked by six white men. When no arrests were made, Parks was dispatched to Abbeville to inquire as to the reason why. To make matters worse, a grand jury refused to indict the men, not once, but twice, try as Parks might to protest the outcome with letters of outrage. It wasn't until 2012 that the state of Alabama formally apologized to Taylor for the grave injustices carried out against her. With Parks' arrest on December 1st, 1955, word of her civil disobedience spread throughout Montgomery's black community and, naturally, reached the chapter of the NAACP on which she served. Its president, Edgar Daniel E.D. Nixon, leapt into action, planning a citywide bus boycott on the day of Parks' trial, four days later on December 5th. By midnight on December 1st, 35,000 flyers had been printed to circulate amongst Montgomery's African-American set. The plan was in motion. As to be expected, Parks was found guilty of violating the separate but equal law, and was given a suspended sentence and was slapped with a $10 fine $4 in court costs. Much to her and E.D. Nixon's surprise, however, the turnout for the bus boycott was larger than they'd anticipated. Fired by the support, Nixon and a handful of black ministers set about forming the Montgomery Improvement Association, or MIA, to manage the boycott, electing a 26-year-old newcomer to the city named Martin Luther King Jr. as its president. Naturally, there was a great outcry surrounding Parks' sentence, namely from African Americans, and a series of lawsuits and appeals followed and made their way all the way up to the Supreme Court. The bus boycott sparked a great deal of outrage in the city's white population, some of which resulted in violence, such as the bombings of both Nixon's and Dr. King's homes. But they remained unmoved, and the boycott continued to grow, garnering both national and international attention. What was meant to be a temporary boycott ended up lasting for over a year. On November 13, 1956, the Supreme Court ruled in Parks' favor by stating that segregation on public transportation was unconstitutional. As the court's written order arrived in Montgomery on December 20th that same year, the boycott came to an end, and Parks, having been relieved of her job at the department store and on the receiving end of a great deal of harassment, moved with her husband to Detroit, where she served as an administrative aide to Congressman John Conyers Jr. from 1965 until her retirement in 1988. She also co-founded the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development in 1987 for the city's youth and, in 1996 and 1999 respectively, was rightfully awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Congressional Gold Medal. But the Montgomery bus boycott was only the beginning, Inspired by the events that had transpired in Alabama's capital, a number of instances of civil disobedience among African Americans began taking place all over the South. In September of 1957, the Little Rock Nine, a group of nine black students, enrolled in the formerly segregated Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, sparking outrage by the city's white residents. Between February and July of 1960, a series of nonviolent protests in Greensboro, North Carolina took place in diners across the city as black students sat at segregated lunch counters and refused to leave when denied service. Soon, blacks in towns and cities across the region began staging their own sit-ins to show solidarity. Then, in March of 1965, the Selma to Montgomery March took place. Led by none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself, it was organized to protest the denial of voting rights on the basis of race. Dr. King, religious leaders, and some 3,200 protesters made the 54-mile, or 87-kilometer, trek from Selma, Alabama, all the way to the state capital of Montgomery. And to think that this all began with the bravery of one woman should be proof positive that a person can, in fact, make a difference. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you for joining me in honoring Black history and achievements this month. I'd like to give a shout-out and warm welcome to Les Higa, who last week became a monthly supporter. Thank you so much for your support, and it's thanks to all of my listeners that I am able to put this content out weekly. Remember, if you'd like to support me to ensure continued quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter yourself. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, where you'll find three monthly support plans in three different tiers which fit any budget. If you're on Instagram, give me a follow at History underscore Loves underscore Company. Again, that's History underscore Loves underscore Company. Shoot me a message and say hello. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast. Because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next week.